Well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's uh, the beginning of football season. Um, some of you may care, some of you may not. Um, and uh, you probably will know that this is pretty significantly, though not completely, New England Patriots territory. There's still a contingent that has pretty strong uh, ties down to that large city to the south, the Jets and the Giants. But um, I've been fascinated for a long time about a particular phenomenon that I've, I've sort of picked up anecdotally along the way. There was actually a, an interview with Tom Brady after he won his second Super Bowl a couple years ago. And uh, you know how there are all these commercials that come up? I think Disney World puts it on like, what are you going to, you've won the Super Bowl, what are you going to do now? And uh, you know what they say? We're going to go to Disney World. What a, what a great celebration. Um, but, but you think, seriously, like what happens? And so this guy asked Tom Brady the question, what do you do after you win the Super Bowl? He's like, well, you go home, you sleep for a couple days and then you get back to work so you can do it again. And then what happens? Think about Michael Jordan and what his life is like. He's been immensely successful. But when you read some of the stories about his life now, he is a man who is addicted to trying to continue to experience the height of competitive success that he had when he played professional basketball. And he's grasping for it. And it's almost sad to me. That he, he continues to live this life hoping for something. And I wonder if we're all like that in different ways. We're not obviously professional athletes. And so the pinnacle or the thing that we set our sights on may not be the same. But I wonder if that we, we all deep in our hearts have something out there. A success that we long for. An achievement that we think will be the pinnacle of what we're striving for, something that will actually give us satisfaction and joy in our lives. And you know, the funny thing about it is when we stop and think about it, we look around what happens with people, we're all seeking this. And yet, I think that the story of human history is that we never reach that point of true satisfaction and of true joy. Because the people who achieve those goals end up like Michael Jordan or Tom Brady going, what's next? There's got to be something next. And for those of us who never achieve those goals, you just live your life frustrated that you've never achieved them. And it feels like we're chasing after shadows, chasing after something that can't actually give us what we want, which is real satisfaction, real purpose, real meaning, real joy in life. I think that's true in in humanity. Do you know, I think there's even a a particularly sort of Christian version of this, a particular, and and what I I think it's what we call being a blessed person, right? So so I'm going to, in the church or in in a religious life, I want to be a blessed person. And so I want to see my life be full of prosperity in my work and and harmony in my relationships and and I I raise good kids and and I'm a I'm a reputable person in my society and in my community Um, and and none of those things are are necessarily bad are they but but we we set our sights on this and this is what it means to be blessed by God and this is the pinnacle this is the life that we're looking for And in church, it can even have a a particularly 
churchy feel to it. I want to be well-known in my church. I want to be the Bible guy who knows my Bible really well or my theology. I want to be known as a, a, a great servant in the church or, or a, a successful minister to other people. And we set our sights on these things. And you know what? None of these things are necessarily wrong. It's not wrong to want to win the Super Bowl. And it's not wrong to want to serve in the church and, and know your Bible. But I think that if we set our sights on these things, ultimately we find none of these things can actually deliver. None of these will actually do for us what we want them to do. We're going to look at a psalm tonight. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Psalms. Uh, We're actually looking at book two. So Psalms 42 through 72, we're picking selected psalms from that chunk Um, to go through. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 67 tonight. It's at page 481 in the Bible in front of you in the pew, if you want. Um, But um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 67. And as we look at this, what I want, what my greatest desire for you is that you will see this Psalm points us to a greater joy and a greater satisfaction, a greater sense of purpose and blessing from God than all these things that we've talked about. So let's look at Psalm 67 together. Let's read it and then I'll pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look at this tonight. So Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face to shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Please pray with me. God, we pray you would help us tonight. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand the truth of this psalm. And Lord, even more than that, may this psalm be the prayer of our hearts. That you would be gracious to us and that you would bless us. And Lord, that the nations would know what a great God you are. and That they would worship you in gladness and joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we look at the psalm, there's one point that I think it has. There's only one point in this whole psalm. Uh, So that's the good news if you think we're going to get out early. However, there's one point. There are three implications and two applications. So we'll be here for a little while. But I think it's going to be a rich exploration of this psalm together. So one point three implications and two applications as we explore it. The one point, the main point of this psalm is this. It is in verse four. That the, the desire, what the psalmist is calling God's people to see and to recognize and to long for is that the nations would be glad in God and in his saving work. That they would sing for joy because of what God has done and is doing in the world. Now, you may ask, why do I think this is the point 
of the passage. So for some of you who love Bible study, I'm going to give you a few hints. This, there, there's some structural reasons that I think why this is the key. Okay, First of all, I started, did you notice that verse 3 and verse 5 are the same? Look at them again. They're exactly the same verse. And you just think, why is that there? And one of the options could be it's a refrain. And surprisingly, the commentators, lots of them say, well, this is a refrain. But a refrain, like in a hymn or a song, you have a, a verse and a chorus and a verse, or a verse and a refrain and a verse and a refrain. And there's that kind of a pattern. But that doesn't seem to make sense here. It doesn't fit that because the refrain doesn't, that pattern doesn't fit. So you think, okay, why else is it here? Well, as you look at it again, you realize it's actually bracketing verse 4 and it's pointing to it. And actually there's a structure that sort of, it starts out here in verse 1 and it points like an arrow to verse 4. And verse 4 is sort of the big idea. And then you see beyond that sort of a mirroring of the same ideas going back. So 3 and 5 are the same. And then verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 and 7 actually mirror each other thematically. And I'll show you that as we go along and look at it. And so I think structurally the psalm points to it. Another really neat thing is that Hebrew poetry is usually written in couplets, right? So each verse will have two parts, part A and part B. So if you look at this psalm, verses 1, 2, and 3 are all couplets, A, B, A, B, A, B. And verses 5, 6, and 7 are all couplets, A, B, A, B, A, B. But verse 4 is A, B, C. And it just sort of stands out. And most of us don't even stop and think about this. But you know what? If you were Hebrew, if you were reading this or hearing this in the original language, that would strike you. The poetry and the meter would strike you. And so, anyway, this is why I believe that this is the central idea. Not only that, but thematically there's sort of a continuity that I think runs through it. Um, And we're going to explore that. So the question is, if this is the big idea, that the nations would be glad because of what God is doing, his saving work in the world, why does it need to be said? Well, the reason is, I think, starting in verse 1, okay? So as we start in verse 1, it says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, if you were a Hebrew, if you were a part of the nation of Israel, these words would resonate like nothing you've ever seen because these words were part of a blessing that was given to God's people as they were leaving Mount Sinai after God had given them the Ten Commandments and given them the law after he delivered them from Egypt before then through the overcoming the Egyptians parting the Red Sea all these great tremendous works of saving his people and then he gave them their law and as they're about to leave Numbers 1 through 10 is the final instructions before they set off to the promised land. And in the middle of it is this blessing given to Aaron the priest to bless the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious to you and make his face to shine upon you. And it's this beautiful blessing. And And these words resonate here. But the psalmist then takes it and says that this blessing is meant to have a purpose. And he's speaking this because if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, God's people didn't always get this. They thought we are blessed so that we can be prosperous and happy and successful. So that we can live in the promised land and God will give us success in everything we set our hearts to and we will be satisfied. 
in being blessed by God. And they thought that was the whole point. When you read the New Testament, Jesus comes right up against this over and over again. That there were people in the first century, first century Jewish people who thought, this isn't, this, the, God's purposes can't be for broader than this. It's about Israel. But this psalm reminds us that this has never been God's intention. You see verse 2? Do you see the so that, that it begins, there's a purpose clause. May God bless you. May God do these great things to his people, for his people. These undeserved things, may he be gracious to you. Why so that? So that your way may be known on the earth. So that your saving power may be known among all the nations. This has been God's plan from the very beginning. That God would not only work through Israel, but God would work in the whole world so that they would see what a great God He is. So that they would see the work of salvation that He is going to do in this world and praise Him. And friends, we know even more than the psalmist what that way of salvation looks like. Because we have seen God send His very Son, Jesus Christ, to take on human form and walk the earth and to live a life of perfect obedience to God and to die for sinners like you and me who can never be perfect and never please God on our own. And Jesus came and he died for us and then he was raised to life so that he might conquer sin and death and offer to us forgiveness and eternal life with him. And these are the saving ways. When we get to the beginning of Hebrews, we'll see that God spoke to his people in various times and forms in the past, but now he has spoken finally, fully, completely in his son, Jesus. And this is the high point of God's saving work in all of history. And it has always been God's desire that this great truth would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. I'm going to spend a few minutes trying to walk you through the whole of Scripture to see this. So if you're the kind of people who doesn't usually take notes, you might want to pull out a pen because I'm going to quote a bunch of Scriptures to try and give you a sense of how this theme has been true throughout all of the Scriptures. All right, so here we go, quickly. Starting all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 12, right? After some of the great beginning stories of the creation of humanity and how humanity rebelled against God and how ultimately humanity was divided uh, amongst themselves because of their rebellion against God. Out of the story of the Tower of Babel where people were given all these different languages so they could not unite in rebellion against God any longer. God then picks a man. He picks a man, Abraham, And he says, I have called you and I will make and I will bless you and I will make you the father of a great nation. And not only will I do that, but as I bless you, I will make your descendants a blessing to all the peoples of the world, to all the families, to all the nations of the world. God comes and he says, Abraham, I will bless you so that you and your descendants may be a blessing 
to the whole world. So then fast forward on through all the history of, uh, all the history of Israel. They go to Egypt, they're enslaved, they're rescued, they're brought up to the promised land. They live in increasing unfaithfulness to God. They are not the people of God that they're called to be. And yet in the midst of that, God is faithful to them. God says, I have not abandoned you. I have not let you go. My purposes will still be achieved through you in the world. And in Isaiah 49, 6, God predicts that one day he will send a servant and that this servant will bring, will restore Israel and will come and bring a renewal of God's people. But he says this in Isaiah 49, 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Throughout the whole Old Testament, you see God including people from outside the nation, right? You look at the genealogy of Jesus. You have Ruth and you have Rahab and you have Bathsheba, all of these Gentiles who are brought in These people who are outside, who are brought in to God's people. And here in Isaiah, you see this promise. A servant is coming. One is coming. And it's too small that I would simply restore Israel to its former glory. But I'm going to raise up this one. And he will not only bring renewal to Israel, but he will be a light to the whole world. And so then, when this servant comes, when Jesus arrives on the scene, you see this theme and this idea unfold and flower before you. And so when Jesus comes, he's constantly confounding the religiously complacent who think by their position they have a right to being God's people and constantly reaching out to people who don't deserve it and who don't know it and who are looked down, who are the ones who are not blessed in Israel. The sick, the poor, the needy. And Jesus comes and he reaches out to them. And he reaches out to people outside the tribe. The Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. The Syrophoenician woman who begs Jesus, please let me eat from the scraps of your table. And Jesus, after challenging her, ultimately says, yes, I will do this. I will bless you. The Roman centurion about whom he says, I've never seen any faith in Israel like the faith of this pagan outsider. So in the life of Jesus, you see this theme happening over and over again. And at the end of his ministry, after his life and death and resurrection, he gives a commission to his church, to his people. He says, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you. And this then sets the trajectory for the rest of the the New Testament in the church. You see in Acts 17, a striking thing. Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens and he's preaching in a very pagan setting where there are lots and lots of gods in in the city. And there's a statue to an unknown god he says, what you worship is unknown. I now proclaim to you. 
And after preaching about the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it, the end of the sermon, he says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked. And ignorance isn't a pejorative term. He's not speaking badly. He's just saying, what you didn't know before, now I'm proclaiming to you so that you know, now you know. And so now you're no longer ignorant. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands not just his people, but all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And this he's given assurance by raising him from the dead. The Apostle Paul, in his letters in Ephesians 3, he says, This is the mystery that in Christ God has expanded the scope so that the Gentiles are meant to be a part of the church along with God's people. And it's so hard for us to imagine how radical that is because my guess is 99.6% of us here are not Jewish. And so we have no idea the sense of privilege. That might be too high, but, my, uh, but, but we have no sense of how radical a change this was because all of us are recipients of this blessing. That me, from my Anglo-Saxon roots can be included in the people of God. A God who was worshipped in Jerusalem. What a great privilege. What a great joy it is. And of course the trajectory goes on ahead. The verse that I read at the beginning of the service. That in Revelation 7 there's this picture. The apostle has a vision. And around the throne of God. In this great arena of worship. Are not just the people of Israel but people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. And they're worshiping God and they're saying to Him, to you be glory and honor and praise and power and and honor and thanksgiving. And this is the plan of God. This has always been the plan of God in the world. And the psalmist reminds us of this. May God bless us so that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation among all people. And this is the plan of God in the world. So that's the point. That's the main point of the passage. I promise the implications and applications won't take so long. Three implications from the text and then two applications. The first implication is this. If this is the plan of God in the world, knowing God is the point of his blessing, right? So verse one is a prayer. God, will you you bless us? But do you see some of the things around it? May you be gracious to us. That is, will you treat us in a way that we don't deserve? And will you make your face shine upon us? And this is indicating a relational component. God is saying, The great purpose for God in the world is that we would know God. That each of us would know God and be able to relate to him face to face. That his face would shine upon us, would be his favor towards us in relationship. We see this personal nature also reflected in verse 6. 
where he says, the earth has yielded its increase. That is, like Jesus says, God has blessed the whole world. The rain falls on the wicked and the righteous. He makes no distinction in his common grace blessing. But then the second half of verse six, do you see it? He says, God, our God will bless us. And there's this sweetness and this tenderness there where the psalmist is not saying, oh, this God who's just sort of far off, but God who, the one who has made us his. And so knowing God is the point of blessing. All of the blessing that he brings in the world is so that we might know him. And there's a sting in this, isn't there? Because I don't know if you are like me, but I want God's blessing to be about me. I want God to bless me so that my life is a little bit more prosperous, a little bit easier, a little bit more successful. I want my kids to be a little bit more well-behaved, etc., etc. That's what I, I want God to bless me so that that will happen. And this point says, no, God's blessing is so that we would know God. And of course, this is not just an individual thing that I would know God, but the second implication is that this goal is, not, is for all of the peoples of the world. We've just spent a lot of time unpacking that, but I want to come back to it again because these words, it's almost a technical term. All the peoples of the earth are all the nations. You see it in the Revelation where it talks about every tribe and tongue. It seems that when God scattered the people in Genesis 11, he looked ahead to the picture in Revelation and he said, my glory will be magnified through language and culture and diversity. And I have created a world with this incredible richness so that they will respond to me from every tribe and tongue and language and worship me. And this means that the God of the Bible is no tribal God. He is not just the God of this people and and not of that people. He is not just a local deity like many of the gods around Israel at that time who'd be a God of a place or a God of a harvest. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He is a God who created all things and he calls all of his creation to turn to him in worship and praise. We live in a world today, in a pluralistic world, where it's very easy to think that God may be interested in collecting the people who have, don't really have a religious tradition or who are going through some kind of crisis. But, you know, if you're in your own faith tradition, bless you. We're really glad you're there. And friends, we need to treat one another with immense respect. And we need to honor one another. God is not wanting to impose upon us. And yet, and yet, he calls all people everywhere to repent. His plan in the world is that people from every tribe and tongue would turn to him and honor him and worship him. He is not just the God of the West. And this is a remarkable thing. If you actually opened your eyes and looked and could see what God is doing in the world. 
the greatest growth in the church, the biggest things that God seems to be doing in exalting Jesus Christ in the world isn't happening here. It's not happening in America. It's not happening in Europe. It's happening in the rest of the world. One of the greatest blessings that I can think of in in the last 10 years of my life is sitting with a group of brothers, believers in China, as they lived going to underground churches, seeking to live out their faith in a culture, in a country that is generally hostile to their belief. And yet they're not thinking about just surviving. These men and women were praying and plotting and planning to take the gospel to Central Asia and to the Middle East and to places where, honestly, my white skin does me no good in trying to be a herald of Jesus Christ. And they're longing to be a part of this. To reach what's called the 1040 window. One of the greatest, the greatest unreached peoples in the world. And God is doing this. So that's the second implication. Is that the, the purpose of God is to reach the extent of all peoples everywhere. And the third implication is this. And that is that God is not simply doing this because He's a cultural hegemon because he really wants to be the top dog and squash all of the rivals. That's not actually his purpose. He is not working to impose himself so that people out of fear or out of mere duty will respond to him so that they don't get slapped on the hand in judgment. But verse 4 reminds us that to know God is to make us glad and to fill us with songs of joy. Verses 3 and 5 tell us that, that all the peoples of the world are to praise Him. What are the things that you praise? They're the things that you see to be so intrinsically beautiful or lovely or valuable that you can't help but say, what an amazing thing that is. God doesn't come and ride roughshod over his world, but God powerfully works to win our hearts so that we would be filled with joy and gladness in him. This is a joy of a people who have lived under oppression when their Savior rides and sets them free from all that they've experienced. This is the joy of a child rescued and returned to his father out of the hands of a kidnapper. This is the joy of a bride reunited after a long forced separation from her bridegroom. This is the joy that God has called the world to know in him. It's what Jesus said would come when he said, my prayer to you is that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be complete. It is the joy that the apostle Peter writes about in the first chapter when he talks about the great things that God has done in causing us to be born again to a living hope. And then at the end he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, 
You are filled with this joy that is inexpressible and full of hope, obtaining for your souls the outcome of your faith, your salvation. This is the joy that God has for us. And this is what his great plan for the world is for us. Is that we would call the nations. And that we would be caught up in this great thing that God is doing. Of finding joy in him. So those are three implications. That knowing God is the purpose of blessing. That the nations are the goal of all of that blessing. But that the outcome is joy. And gladness. And songs of praise and worship. So two applications. What does this mean for us? Firstly, it means this. It means that our greatest joy is meant to be found in God and his plans for the world. Not us. We are not meant to be the end of the line of God's blessing. We are not meant to be a pool in which the streams of God's blessing flow into but not out of. That creates a very stagnant, smelly pool a lot of the time. But we are meant to be a refreshing pool into which the, fl- the stream of God's blessings flow and out of which the streams of God's blessing will flow to others. God calls us to be a conduit, to be a, a display case, if you will, Of God's blessing in Jesus Christ. So that the world would see what a great God we serve. And the amazing thing is that we find our greatest joy and satisfaction and purpose in this. Not because we're the center of it anymore. God overrides our self-centeredness and our concern about taking care of ourselves. And he says if you will look outward and look upward. That is where you will find the thing that you're looking for. And that is worth setting your life on. Your hopes, your aspirations, your dreams. On God and his plan in this world. And on knowing him. You know, there's a man in our church that I've seen this happen in recently. It's been really fun to see it happen. He came to me a little while ago and he said, you know, for the last couple of years, I've just been, I've kind of been living the American dream. I've got a good job. I've got a good family. They're doing well. We moved into a bigger house. We're really comfortable. But for the last couple of years, I've struggled. I just, what is it all for? What, what is the purpose of all this? And I've, I've been frustrated and, and empty and, and just despairing about, am I just going to do this until I die? And then he came across the truth of what we've been preaching tonight. That the nations will be glad in God and that we are meant to be caught up in this. And it changed everything. He realized that his chief end, as the Westminster Catechism says, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And you know what? It's changed everything. It's changed his time. He's now available. He's spending the capital of his time 
in knowing God and being involved in our church community and being involved in ministry and being heading out to conferences when he has a chance to learn and to grow and to, to see more. It's changed his finances as he's thinking about, what do I do with all this blessing that God has given me? How do I use it not just for my like greater building of barns and accumulation of wealth, but how do I use this for the glory of God? It's changed his future plans. He said, I have a successful career, but, but I'm willing to leave it all tomorrow if God can show me that he wants to use me somewhere else in the world. And you know, he knows that God may not take him anywhere. God may want him to be faithful, remain where he is, but all that he's doing is now released to be used for God's glory. And he started speaking to his co-workers with much greater freedom about Christ. This, this church job of doing evangelism and telling other people about Jesus isn't a job anymore. It's a joy. Because he just overflows about the wonderful things that God is doing in his life. He no longer pursues a life of prosperity and ease. But he's pursuing God's purposes. And my prayer is that that would be true for you and for me. So that's the first application. The second application is this, that individually and corporately we are called to be a part of God's great work in the world. We are called to look at the world and to see what God is doing and to be a part of it. Probably many of you don't know because in the evening service, we don't go downstairs. But downstairs in our fellowship hall, there's a bulletin board that has pictures of the missionaries that we support as a church. And if you want, I'll go downstairs and turn the lights on so you can go see who those people are and you can learn a bit about their ministry so that you can begin to pray for them. So that you can begin to know what God is doing in other parts of the world. That's one way to to begin to be involved in what God is doing. Another way is to pick up your newspaper. I don't know. Have you been reading the papers? Can you imagine what your brothers and sisters in Egypt have endured this week? It's been a terrible week. Churches have been burned. The whole country seems to be in uproar. Friends, pray for them. Let your newspaper guide your prayer And ask that God would be glorified in the world. Learn to be a discerning reader. To see through some of the mess of our media. And to to perceive and to ask for God to show you what he's doing. Pray for the growth of the church. In trial and in prosperity. In the rest of the world. Be involved in that. Think through your finances. What are you doing with your money? Are you hoarding and trying to build a great retirement account for yourself? Or are you thinking, how can I take what God has given me so that I can use it for his glory and for the spread of his fame to the whole world? How about going? As far as I know, Trinity has not sent a short-term missions trip from our church in the last 10 years. Maybe longer than that. Friends, this needs to change. Not because short-term missions is the be-all, end-all of everything, but we need to be involved and we need to know how to partner. Some of our missionaries are not people from America. They're people from other parts of the world. We need to figure out how we can go and encourage these 
servants. We need to figure out how we can go and partner with them in the ministry that they are doing in other places. We need to figure out how we can go. That means we need to clear our schedule. We need to find the money. And even if it's not the most efficient or the most effective way, we need to pray that God would make a way for us to see his heart and to be captured by it. And finally, some of you may be called. God may be calling some of you here tonight to lay aside your career plans and your aspirations, to lay aside the security of whatever you perceive to be your security here in America, in the everyday life here, and to go, to go to a different culture where the language will always be a second language, where life will always be a little bit harder to live, where you'll always be learning more about the culture, and yet in the midst of that, what looks like foolishness in the world, God has used people over and over again to take the good news of Jesus Christ to people who've never heard it or don't know it or don't have exposure to it. And friends, we all need to ask ourselves a question. Would God want to do that with me? And he might send you as a full-time missionary. He might send you as a vocational tent maker. But instead of setting your goal on moving to New York or Chicago or Boston... Maybe you should set your sights on moving to Abu Dhabi or Delhi or Shanghai to do the work that he's called you to so that you can be a part of building his church somewhere in the world. And finally, I said that last time, didn't I? Finally again, recognize that we live in one of the most remarkable small cities in the country. Because you know what? The whole world comes here. The whole world comes to New Haven because of Yale University and the academic opportunities there, because we're a refugee resettlement city for the U.S. State Department. People come here from all over the world, from places where you can't even go as an American or as a missionary. And so we can be a part of reaching the nations by shopping at Stop and Shop and simply walking down the ethnic food aisle and seeing who's shopping there and striking up a conversation with them. By recognizing the diversity of your neighbors and reaching out to them and getting to know them and seeing that God may have positioned you to reach a part of the world that you would never go to simply because you live in New Haven because you're here for study or for work and he's going to allow you to rub shoulders with people from all over the world. It's why we have a French-speaking fellowship that meets once a month and a Spanish-speaking fellowship and we're hoping to have a Mandarin-speaking fellowship soon because we recognize that even if language is a barrier, there's something that you can invite people to as you meet them where they can begin to hear about the glorious things of what God has done In Jesus Christ. Not just for you and not just for me. But for the whole world. So let the nations be glad. And let us be glad. In all the greatness of what God has done. Let's pray. God we do pray tonight. We pray that you would 
Lord, catch us up in your purposes and your plan and your heart for the world. God, I pray that, Lord, if you have shown us tonight where our hearts are selfish, where we are seeking to find our satisfaction and joy in things of this world and are pursuing them wholeheartedly, God, will you, by your grace, turn our hearts towards you that we might repent and believe and know that your purposes in the world are the greatest goal that you have given us. And God, we pray that as you do that, Lord, that you would then open our ears and our hearts to hear your calling. You're calling to go. You're calling to stay. You're calling to pray. You're calling to reach out to those around us, not because we have anything in ourselves, but simply because of the great thing that you have done in Christ and the joy that we have found in it. And God, will you equip us, Lord, with our stammering tongues and our uh, fearful hearts. Lord, will you uh, give us, Lord, the ability to do what you've called us to in the moments. Lord, for your glory and for our joy, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the worship team comes forward, we're going to respond with songs... Um, songs of praise, songs that, that fulfill this, verses 3 and 5, let all the nations, let all the peoples praise you, songs of joy. And I just want to ask you to, to sing these songs, and as you're look, thinking about it, I want the words that you sing to reflect the reality of your heart. And if you're finding that's hard, because you recognize my heart is not there, then spend a little bit of time just praying and asking God to change your heart. And then join in, because sometimes we need to open our mouths and to sing these things so that God can use that to capture our hearts. So let's continue to worship God tonight.